3: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for our children under 13.
0: What's going on?
1: Why won't they let us in? Reverend! There'll be no Sunday service today. Why are the police here?
0: Please, tell us what's happened.
1: I... Officer... Yes? I can't turn these folks away. They've come to hear a sermon. I'm sorry, Reverend, but we have to clear the area. No one goes inside, period. I I must insist on something. Everyone, please listen here. Our friends at the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department have informed me that... We cannot enter the church at this time because it is an active crime scene. What?
0: My God!
1: Reverend, we can't have a crowd this big here. I know. I know. You'll need to vacate the premises. I understand. But if there ever was a time to pray and worship, it is now. I too am sorry, officer. Everyone, I will hold today's service at the rear of the church. I will not cancel this ceremony. It is clear to me that we must continue as usual to worship and to pray. I will not let evil triumph.
3: The date was October 13th, 1974.
2: The Place Memorial Church, located on Stanford University's campus in Palo Alto, California.
3: The victim? 19-year-old Arliss Perry, a beautiful, deeply religious newlywed who had entered the church the night before to pray.
2: But instead of finding lasting solace, she was brutally murdered, her body positioned in such a way as to suggest a link to a possible satanic conspiracy.
3: That is the prevailing theory.
2: But not the one the police settled on. Which, of course, leaves us to come to our own conclusions. And navigate through the horrific sacrilege and dark turns as this case unfolds. Murdered in a church.
3: I can only wonder, is anything sacred anymore?
2: Well, to the person who ended the life of Arliss Perry, the answer is clearly no.
3: This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
2: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on Arlis Perry.
3: If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday.
2: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network.
3: Silicon Valley in 1974.
2: It was a time of transition, an emergence of technology, and the tip of the iceberg that would become the digital age.
3: Because of this, the fields of science and technology were becoming even more popular.
2: Aspiring computer engineers, doctors, and mathematicians were flocking to campuses across the country.
3: And one of these institutions was Stanford University.
2: In the fall of 1973, Stanford admitted an ambitious student by the name of Bruce Perry.
3: But it was his new bride that would go down in history.
2: She would be remembered as the spirited young receptionist and devout Christian who was murdered inside a locked church in October of 1974.
3: The victim, Arliss Perry, was originally born Arliss K. Dykma on February 22, 1955, in Bismarck, North Dakota.
2: She experienced an idyllic but sheltered upbringing in a typical Midwestern neighborhood.
3: She herself was the epitome of the all-American girl, a veritable Sandra D. Pretty, blonde, petite, um, but the story does not end like the musical Grease.
2: That's for sure. She also had a welcoming warm smile that seemed to be her default setting.
3: And she was a cheerleader at Bismarck High for three years.
2: Yes, and oddly enough, the team mascot was the demons. Mm, What
3: a mascot.
2: Imagine, if you will, a red-faced devil cartoon with white horns and teeth snarling at the competitors.
3: Mm, Okay, that detail's a little eerie, considering Arliss's devotion to church and the circumstances surrounding her death.
2: I would have to agree with you. It's
3: all just a little too odd. In addition to cheerleading, Arliss made her studies a very high priority. But the focal point of her life? her religion. Yes. She was a deeply devoted Christian, and most of her passion and energy
2: went towards volunteering at her church. She was a member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and also part of Young Life, an evangelical society for students. Members of Young Life taught Sunday school and preached to the masses. And this she did with gusto. Arliss was a determined missionary.
3: And tragically, this may have been what led to her demise.
2: But first, her religion led her to the man she would eventually marry, Bruce Perry.
3: Like Arliss, Bruce was a committed Christian and also a member of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes.
2: And an athlete he was. He held several records in track and field, particularly the quarter-mile race.
0: He's so fast, isn't he? You like him, don't you? He's sweet. (laughs) It's not hard to find sweet around here. Well, he's more than that. And he goes to church. So do a lot of boys at school. But he cares. A lot of the boys here just go because their mothers would scold them if they didn't. But he goes because he wants to. There's a difference. Has he asked you to the dance? That's months away. Still, someone else could ask you. He should be worried. I don't know about that. (laughs) How many times have you gone out? A couple. We agreed we'd like to see more of each other. Well, here he comes. So I guess you're getting your wish. Doesn't the team go to the hamburger shack after competitions? Yes, and I think I'll go with him.
2: (sighs) I think I'd go anywhere with him. (laughs) Bruce was nearly irresistible. He was smart, attractive, athletic, ever the popular man on campus.
3: He was a solid shoe-in for a life of success.
2: And that's where he was headed. He
3: enrolled at Stanford as a pre-med student. And found a woman who loved him. And agreed to marry him.
2: Bruce proposed after a year-long courtship when they were only 18.
3: But the couple would spend most of the engagement apart. While Bruce poured over his textbooks in the Stanford dorms, Arliss remained in Bismarck, North Dakota to attend
2: junior college. She also worked as a receptionist at Bruce's father's dental office part-time to save money for the wedding. And continued her church-related activities, of course. Although the distance was tough, Bruce seemed hopeful. He was idealistically traditional. A
3: good job, a happy wife, a nice home, future children. This was what he envisioned.
2: So you might say that the time he spent away from Arliss that first year was a sacrifice he was willing to make for the sake of the long term. Right. But for Arliss, it
3: was much harder. She missed her fiancé dearly.
0: Hey, honey. It's me again. You must be in class. I still haven't figured out your schedule yet. I hope your day is going well. School's going okay. Uh, Working with your father is nice. He wants to give me a raise. He's too generous. But I have to admit, it's nice to get some extra money for the wedding. Next time you visit, we'll have to try some cakes together. I know you love chocolate, but I sampled a vanilla cake with pink frosting that is so tasty. Anyway, I'm thinking about you. I love you. Call when you can.
2: After a year apart, the couple finally married on August 17th, 1974 the ceremony
3: was held at the Bismarck Reformed Church, where Arliss and Bruce Perry stood in front of several family members and friends, declaring their commitment to each other and to God.
2: They then enjoyed a low-key honeymoon at a cabin for a week before returning to the demands of daily life.
3: But a big transition was coming, because Arliss was moving with Bruce to California.
2: And she would only live there for six weeks before losing her life.
3: We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue the story.
2: Once they arrived in California, Bruce and Arliss were worried about their financial situation.
3: But, as luck would have it, Arliss was offered a job as a receptionist at a Palo Alto law firm just weeks after they moved.
2: This relieved some of their financial woes.
3: And it gave Arliss something to do while Bruce was busy with classes and campus life.
2: But the job was not enough for Arliss. And she became very homesick. She wrote a letter home expressing this. These were her exact words.
0: Friends are hard to find here. Many times I've been tempted to go knock on doors asking if anybody needs a friend. But I guess we just have to appreciate each other and trust the Lord for new friends, too.
3: But it wasn't just about being away from home that seemed to weigh on Arliss. It was the social culture of California that left her wanting. She also wrote...
0: Nobody here is very personal at all. They don't even say hello when you ride up the elevator with them.
3: It's almost as if Arliss was living in a different time, expecting a world you might find in the Andy Griffith show.
2: She was used to simplicity, family, community, and a network of fellow Christians.
3: And also, Arliss was feeling the pangs of boredom. With nothing substantial to drive towards, no real professional purpose, she often spent her free time wandering the Stanford campus. And the
2: place she visited most?
3: Memorial Church, which quickly became a place of refuge for her.
2: And why wouldn't it? It's magnificent.
3: The structure, which stands in the main quad at the center of campus, is now over a hundred years old and famous for its history. It has been the site of many religious
2: ceremonies. And survived the devastating earthquake of 1906. Not to mention the earthquake of 1989. (laughs) It was built during the American Renaissance and opened in 1903.
3: Jane Stanford, wife of former Senator Leland Stanford, commissioned the structure as a memorial to her husband who passed away in 1893.
2: Together they had founded Stanford University.
3: That joint venture was actually a memorial for their only son, who had died from typhoid in 1884.
2: So both Stanford University and its well-renowned church were built in honor of someone.
3: What a compliment to have a top-rate university or a church built in your
2: memory. The church had been referred to as the university's architectural crown jewel and is known for its interdenominational philosophy. Which means it opens its
3: doors to several denominations of faith, allowing people from various spiritual backgrounds to utilize it as a place of worship.
2: It's considered a fairly small church, but what it lacks in size, it makes up for in grandeur.
3: Inside, it's as ornate as it is colorful. Everywhere you look, there's rich scarlet and gold, cascading tapestries, stained glass windows, and beautiful candelabra. A
2: large dome reigns supreme, showering light into the structure.
3: Rows of pews angle towards the main altar, which is flanked by rounded alcoves featuring additional seating.
2: Imagine a layout looking a bit like a three-leaf clover.
3: Around 11.30 on October 12th, Arliss and her husband, Bruce, were walking across campus to drop off some letters at a campus mailbox.
2: But they began arguing,
3: as couples do. The matter itself was fairly petty.
2: A tire on their car was leaking, and the two were deciding who would be responsible for fixing it.
3: Bruce had a rigorous class schedule.
2: And Arliss had her reception job
3: at the law firm. At one point, Arliss decided to stop walking home with Bruce.
2: She told him she wanted to pray at the church.
3: It seemed that Bruce may have initially wanted to go with her, but that Arliss indicated she wanted to be alone.
2: Well, they had just
3: argued before. Eventually, Bruce agreed. He'd continue on home, and she'd say her evening prayers. She'd meet him back at the house about a half hour later.
2: Bruce was okay with his 19-year-old wife praying alone at 1130 at night? Were there services going on at that time?
3: No, but according to a conversation Bruce later had with police, he admitted that it wasn't uncommon for the two of them to worship late at night.
2: Okay, so it may have been normal for them to worship at that time, but it still makes me wonder, why didn't he stay and worship with her?
3: Well, that is a good question. Perhaps he was tired or too frustrated to stay, and they both felt that there was no real risk, considering it was on a college campus.
2: But they were mistaken.
3: The two parted ways, and at about 11.50 p.m., Arliss entered Memorial Church and knelt at a pew in the front left row.
2: There were two other people in the church at the time.
3: But at midnight, the time when the church closed for the night, those two worshipers left.
2: But Arliss remained.
0: But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Lord, bless me especially with gentleness and kindness tonight. Bruce and I got into an argument. Sometimes being a wife is difficult. I know it is my duty to love and honor my husband, but sometimes we don't see eye to eye. Give me the strength and self-control to return home with an open heart and mind. And let us not go to bed frustrated with each other, but with a patience and love that transcends earthly quarrels. Amen.
3: It was 1210 in the morning, a few minutes behind his normal schedule, when campus security guard Steve Crawford entered the church.
2: It looked empty, but still Crawford had to make an announcement as a formality.
1: We're closing for the night. The church is being locked for the night now. If anyone is here, you'll have to leave.
3: Then he locked up. But he would return every hour on his rounds to do a cursory check on the church.
2: Well, it was about this same time that Bruce started to worry that Arliss hadn't returned home.
3: So he went out looking for her. As he made his way across campus, he went straight for Memorial Church.
2: He tried the church doors, but they were locked.
3: So he started to scour the campus.
2: Where was he thinking that she might have gone?
3: Who knows, but he couldn't find her. So he headed back home, hoping she took a different route and was already safe inside.
2: But the apartment was empty, just how he had left it. So now it was time for other measures. At about three in the morning, Bruce placed a call. To campus security. He told the dispatcher that his wife Arliss hadn't come home. She had been at the memorial church praying, and she said she'd be back after it closed.
3: He also told the dispatcher that he was worried she may have fallen asleep and gotten locked inside the church by mistake.
2: Stanford officers were dispatched to the church.
3: Where they tried the doors, which of course were locked, but they didn't go inside.
2: So essentially their reporting to the church was useless. How could they know if somebody fell asleep inside if they didn't actually go inside?
3: Exactly. It is believed that if they had gone inside and checked around that they would have run into the killer.
2: Why is that?
3: because at 5 30 a.m steve crawford the security guard returned to the church and noticed that the entrance door on the right side of the building had been forced open but not from the outside someone had broken it from the inside
2: so it would seem that someone had been locked in
3: perhaps more than one person when crawford went to investigate he examined the pews and (sighs)
1: <sighs> what? Oh, my God.
3: Discovered the body of Arliss Perry on the left side of the church facing the pulpit. She was lying on her back underneath a pew.
2: Above her on a wall was a large cross.
3: Which, juxtaposed with her dead body, must have been a disturbing sight.
2: All of it was.
3: She had been beaten horribly.
2: Dark bruises and a broken bone in her neck suggested that she had been strangled.
3: She was naked from the waist down with her legs spread.
2: Her blue jeans, having been removed, were placed across her legs in the shape of a V, which, with the way that her legs were spread, created a diamond pattern
3: conspiracy theorist would later equate this V-shape of her jeans and the V-shape of her legs to a satanic symbol featuring triangle-like shapes in an oppositional pattern.
2: Similar to a star shape.
3: There's more. Her killer had ripped open her shirt and placed a 24-inch long altar candle between her breasts.
2: Whoever did this to her also sexually assaulted her with an altar candle. That was now broken in two.
3: But, oddly enough, her killer had not actually raped her himself.
2: However, forensics also found semen stains on a kneeling cushion which was nearby.
3: This would suggest that her killer masturbated near her, but did not have physical sexual contact with her.
2: According to the initial medical examiner's findings, Arliss died at approximately midnight.
3: Right before Crawford checked the church and locked up.
2: This would mean that Arliss's killer was most likely still inside the church when her husband Bruce checked the door at 12:15, and when police checked shortly after 3 a.m. It's likely the
3: killer escaped from inside after the cops reported to the church, but before Steve Crawford found the busted door. So sometime between 3 and 5:30 a.m.
2: It wasn't long before a slew of detectives and officers reported to the scene.
3: Morning, detective.
1: You were the first one here? Yes, sir, and... uh, And what? Well, sir, uh, it's pretty god-awful.
3: Show me. After the lead detective surveyed the crime scene, he quickly came to a conclusion. The fact that the victim was assaulted
1: with objects and left half-naked on the floor, I can't help but believe this is the work of a sexual psychopath. So that's who we're looking for? Yes. What do we know of the victim? Name is Arliss Perry, 19. A student? No, but her husband is. Husband? His name is Bruce Perry. He called Stanford police at about 3 this morning, reported her missing, said she went to the church to pray. He worried she might have fallen asleep before the doors were locked. You spoke with him? No, I spoke with the dispatcher who took the call. And where is this, Mr. Perry? At home, sir. He lives at an apartment building for married students. It's uh, Quillen Hall. Then we'll go there. Let's leave some of the cavalry here. I'm always wary of too many cooks in the kitchen. That's the right unit? Yes, sir, it
3: is. When the detectives went to question Bruce, they found him covered in blood.
2: Bruce insisted that it was his own. He told them that when he was overly stressed, he'd suffer from severe nosebleeds.
3: The police weren't so easily convinced this was the case, so they had a blood typing done.
2: This is just what it sounds like. Blood is tested in a lab to determine what type it is.
3: There are four major blood types, A, B, AB, and O.
2: The results showed that the blood found on Bruce's clothing was indeed his, not Arliss's.
3: They had different blood types, so the nosebleed story was true. He also passed a polygraph.
2: So who were the police prepared to investigate next?
3: Our story will continue in a moment after the break.
2: And now, back to unsolved murders.
3: Detectives considered security guard Steve Crawford as a person of interest early on.
2: But he was cleared of any involvement since none of the evidence recovered at the scene linked him to the murder. So now detectives looked to an eyewitness account.
3: A passerby claimed to have seen a young man go into the church at midnight while Arliss was still inside.
2: The witness described the man as 23 to 25 years of age. He had a medium build, sandy colored hair, which was parted on the left. He wore a royal blue short-sleeved shirt and no watch.
3: And for some reason, the witness felt the need to note the absence of a watch.
2: Detectives kept much of the information about the murder a secret from the public.
3: But the university paper, the Stanford Daily, covered the story frequently, and one article opened a small can of worms in discussing the death of Arliss Perry.
2: The following is taken directly from an article entitled, Police Find No Evidence to Link Campus Killings.
0: The murder of 19-year-old Arliss Perry yesterday morning was the fourth homicide here in less than two years and the third involving a young woman out alone. Santa Clara County Sheriff's investigating officers said yesterday they had nothing to link the Perry murder to the earlier slayings, although for the moment they weren't totally ruling out that possibility. So far, none of the four murders, extending back to February 1973, have been solved.
2: So within two years, four people had been murdered on or near the Stanford campus.
3: Mm -hmm. First, there was Leslie Marie Perlov, a 21-year-old Stanford graduate and librarian. She was found strangled in the foothills behind campus on February 16, 1973.
2: David S. Levine, a Stanford physics student, was stabbed to death early in the morning on September 11th, 1973.
3: Then there was 21-year-old Janet Ann Taylor. While hitchhiking back to her home from campus, she was strangled and thrown into a ditch.
2: But again, police didn't link the cases to each other, or to Arliss's case. At least, not at this point.
3: Which seems peculiar. Could it have been because the other slayings were all committed outside and were less involved in Arliss's murder? Or
2: well, that could be, considering the other murders felt a bit more routine. The fact that Arliss's murder took place in a church and considering how she was violated with objects from the church. The killer's M.O. varies a good deal.
3: Although Arliss' murder did contrast greatly with the other murders in the area, police were calling it a fairly straightforward case.
2: Under Sheriff Tom Rosa concluded the following, quote,
3: It's atypical, if there is such a
1: thing. It's sexual psychopathic slaying. It has no cult-like overtones. It just
3: happened to occur in a church. Well, what could that mean, no cult-like overtones?
2: Well, possibly there was no overt cult-related imagery, no objects left behind that could be associated with a cult. No obvious identifiable symbols, perhaps. But it was strange enough to suggest that the killing was more than just sexual, right?
3: Well, many were not buying the purely sexual angle, including Reverend Hammerton Kelly, the dean of Memorial Church.
2: Reverend Hammerton Kelly held the Sunday service behind the church the day Arliss's body was discovered.
3: And used the words ritualistic and satanic to describe the murder.
2: A wildfire of speculation spread quickly.
3: One main theory emerged, that Arliss was killed by a person or persons belonging to a satanic cult.
2: Because Arliss was a passionate missionary, it
3: seemed she was an obvious target. And then new information surfaced from her autopsy.
2: Police soon determined that strangulation was not the actual cause of death.
1: Bruising on the neck and chest suggests strangulation, but due to the markings, I don't believe it was the cause of death. Then what was? See this blood on her head? What? There seems to be something... Uh, it's some metal. A piece of metal. Show me. Well, it, it looks like it's lodged in the skull, but I can't be certain. I'll need to get an X-ray.
3: The medical examiner discovered a wound on Arliss's head. And determined that
2: it was made by an ice pick.
3: And this weapon was apparently thrust into her skull behind her left ear.
2: The handle had broken off, but the metal portion remained intact.
3: That's why it went unnoticed in the initial examination at the crime scene.
2: Yes, there was no handle, and the metal part was lodged so far inside her head that it was almost undetectable.
3: The reveal of the ice pick was huge because it suggested that this murder was planned.
2: Right. An ice pick is not something one would find in a church and use on the spot.
3: Mm, An ice pick is a very specific weapon of choice, which would lead me to believe that this wasn't a crime of passion. This was premeditated.
2: And premeditation speaks to the possibility that there was an even bigger plan in place, that Arliss was being watched, stalked even, and whoever did this felt the need to violate her and take her out. And they knew exactly how they would do it
3: incapacitate her with force, defile her body, and finish her off with an ice pick.
2: The satanic cult theory is one that would not die right from the very beginning.
3: Eventually, Bruce Perry's parents heard a story that spoke to this theory and it alarmed them greatly. It revolved around Arliss and a girlfriend and events that happened prior to Arliss's move to California.
2: According to some rumors, Arliss and this friend had traveled to the North Dakota town of Mandan in the hopes of converting members of a satanic cult to Christianity.
3: The theory is that not only did Arliss' attempt at conversion fail, she also angered the members of the cult, inciting a vendetta against Arliss and her friend.
2: Little is known about the alleged friend. There isn't even a name on record.
3: But it is believed that she was probably a member of the Christian group Young Life, to which Arliss also belonged.
2: The story itself was brought to the attention of investigators, who questioned several Young Life members to glean more information.
3: Sadly, however, nothing much came of it.
2: But it did contribute to the overall theory that Arliss' death wasn't primarily sexual in nature, but that she was killed for a very specific reason, her religious fervor. Did Arliss' missionary work get her killed? The satanic conspiracy doesn't end there, though. No, because Arliss Perry
3: has been linked to famed serial killer David Berkowitz, also known as the Son of Sam, who pled guilty to a string of gun killings he committed in New York City
2: in 1976. But it was his possible ties to a massive network of Satanists that has his and Arliss's stories crossing paths. Is it
3: possible that Arliss's death was part of a much larger satanic conspiracy?
2: And could her murder have been related to Alistair Crowley, the British Satanist who founded the religion of Thelema? Some think so. Another cult, known as the Process Church, has also been suggested. We'll explore all this in depth in the final episode. As well as unexpected testimony from a man who attended Arliss's funeral. His
3: admission to police throws a monkey wrench into the investigation and challenges the
2: preconceived notions of Arliss's spotless background. It also reminds us that what we assume and what we choose to believe can often be farthest from the truth.
3: don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts. Tune in Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday and next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into Arliss Perry.
2: Thank Thank you so much for listening.
3: We will see you next time.
2: If we live till next time.
3: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Malo and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, and Steve Pinto.